0: W meeting.
1: Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. welcome to One Sweet Dream. I'm your host, Diana Erickson, and I am again joined by Dr. Duncan Driver. Today, I have decided to do something a little bit out of order. Uh, Duncan Driver and I spent a lot of time last year going through McCartney's book, The Lyrics. We met on four different occasions, and we were in four very different moods, On each occasion, which makes it a a very odd listen, because the first time we met, we were unhappy with the book, and then we found things to like. And then eventually, we started to wade into what Paul said about various songs in the introduction. So I think it is going to be a very interesting deep dive into the book, the lyrics. However, we did also specifically call out a couple of songs, one of which was Dear Friend. And as I was editing the other day, I thought, well, this one is a particularly interesting conversation because it's actually one of the most interesting write-ups in the book. And so I'm going to pull this forward out of order. Next season, we will have our deep dive into the lyrics book, what we like, what we don't like about it, and various interesting things that he says. But this particular episode is just going to be our analysis of what he wrote about this song and what it means. I don't think Paul was necessarily all that revealing in this book, and he's very contradictory, and there's a lot of issues. But what he had to say about this particular song was interesting. Now, Duncan and I had a very unstructured, loose conversation about this. Now, of course, I asked Duncan to read through the various bits of Paul's commentary, because I love when Duncan reads anything. However, it's so choppy that I am going to read it once up front, and then you can follow through with us. So I'm sorry you're not getting the wonderful Duncan to read through the whole text. You're just getting me, but then he will read through it as we wade through this. Okay, so this is what Paul has to say. Dear friend, and just, I'm going to read the lyrics first. Dear friend, what's the time? Is this really the borderline? Does it really mean so much to you? Are you afraid or is it true? Dear friend, throw the wine. I'm in love with a friend of mine. Really, truly young and newly wed. Are you a fool or is it true? Are you afraid or is it true? So that's it. So that's the whole of the song. Now, this is what Paul has to say in the write-up. Often I would think of John and what a pity it was that we'd argued so publicly and so viciously at times. At the time of writing this song in early 1971, he'd call the McCartney album rubbish in Rolling Stone magazine. It was a really difficult time. I just felt sad about the breakdown in our friendship. And this song kind of just came flowing out Dear friend, what's the time? Is this really the borderline? Are we splitting up? Is this, you go your way, I'll go mine? Towards the end of 1969, John had quite gleefully told us it was over. There were a few of us in the Apple boardroom at this time. I think George was away visiting family, but Ringo and I were at the meeting and John was saying no to every suggestion. I thought we should go back to playing smaller gigs again. But the answer came back, no eventually john said oh i've been wanting to tell you this but i'm leaving the beatles we were all shocked relations had been strained but we sat there saying what why 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 it was like a divorce and he had just had a divorce from cynthia the year before i can remember him saying oh this is quite exciting that was very john And I had admired this kind of contrarian behavior about him since we were kids when I first met him. He really was a bit loony in the nicest possible way. But whilst all of us could see what he meant, it was not quite so exciting for those left on the other side. I've been keeping largely quiet about John and the Beatles split up in the press. I didn't really have many accusations to fling. But being John, he was flinging quite a few in interviews. He had accused me of announcing the Beatles breakup to promote the McCartney album, but I was just answering Apple's press questions. Honestly, I didn't want to do interviews to promote it. And Peter Brown at Apple had asked the questions like, are you planning a new album or single with the Beatles? My answer was no. I saw no points in lying. John would say things like it was rubbish. The Beatles were crap. Also, I don't believe in the Beatles. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. Those were quite hurtful barbs to be flinging around. And I was the person they were being flung at. And it hurt. So I'm having to read all this stuff. And on the one hand, I'm thinking, oh, fuck off, you fucking idiot. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, why would you say that? Are you annoyed at me? Or are you jealous? Or what? What? And thinking back 50 years later, I still wonder how he must have felt. He'd gone through a lot. His dad disappeared, and then he'd lost his Uncle George, who was a father figure. His mother, Stuart Sutcliffe, Brian Epstein, another father figure. And now, his band. But John had all of these emotions wrapped in a ball of linen. That was the fascination. I tried. I was sort of answering him, asking, does it need to be like this? Does it need to be this hurtful? I think this is a good line. Are you afraid or is it true? Meaning, why is this argument going on? Is it because you're afraid of something? Are you afraid of the split up? Are you afraid of my doing something without you? Are you afraid of the consequences of your actions? And the little rhyme. Or is it true? Are all these hurtful allegations true? This song came out in that kind of mood. It could have been called, what the fuck man? But I'm not sure we could have gotten away with that one. Did the three of us, George, Ringo and I think of carrying on without John? No, I don't think so, no. We were such a unit, such a foursome. We joked about forming a group called the Threedles but we didn't seriously consider it. It was never anything more than a joke. We did do a few little bits and pieces together before we all went our separate ways. John and I, Yoko, did the ballad of John and Yoko. He enlisted me for that because he knew it was a great way to make a record. We'll go round to Abbey Road Studios. Who lives near there? Paul. Who's going to drum on this record? Paul. Who can play bass? Paul. And who will do it if I ask him nicely? Paul. He wasn't at all sheepish about asking. He probably said something like, Oh, I've got this song I want to record. Would you come round? And I probably said, yeah, why not? There were still a lot of loose ends to tie up. We still had all the business things to surmount. You have to remember, I sued him in court. I sued my friends from Liverpool. My lifelong friends in court. But in the end, I think playing on that session with him and Yoko contributed to our having had quite a few friendly meetings and conversations later. I think this song, Dear Friend, also helped. I would imagine you heard it. I think he listened to my records when they came out. But he never responded directly to me. That was not his way. We were guys. It wasn't like a boy and a girl. In those days, you didn't release much emotion with each other. I was very glad how we got along in the last few years, that I had some really good times with him before he was murdered. Without question, it would have been the worst thing in the world for me. Had he been killed when we still had a bad relationship, I would have thought, oh, I should have, I should have, I should have. It would have been a big guilt trip for me. But luckily, our last meeting was very friendly. We talked about how to bake bread. And so um, on the pages in the lyrics book, he has a picture of the ballad of John and Yoko. He has a picture of John photographed by Linda, in santa monica in 1974 he has a picture of his diary from the 16th where it says the end now i don't know if it says the end there because this is where paul checked out where issues happened with northern songs because this is a few days before john actually asked for the divorce nevertheless this was in their book or maybe it was written retroactively Anyways, it is written in what looks like Linda's hand, and it says, the end. And then there's a picture of all of them uh, in the Apple boardroom, taken by Linda. And Paul's looking at Linda, Ringo, Maureen, Yoko, and John is talking to Alan Klein. And there's a couple of other people in this as well. There is Peter Howard and John Eastman. And then on the following page, there's a picture taken by Linda of John and Yoko, both working in Paul's living room. It's a photo that's always struck me because John and Yoko are on opposite sides of the table and they're both deep at work and they seem so relaxed. John has a glass of wine. It's like he's relaxed in Paul's house. And then there's a picture of John and Yoko from the Ballad of John and Yoko photo shoot. So that's all the preamble we need before jumping into the conversation I had with Duncan. Here we go! I thought about a a new title for the lyrics, All the Things I Can Say Without Actually Saying Anything.
2: Between the Lines.
1: Yeah. Or 900 pages of saying everything and absolutely nothing at all.
2: Paul's Life is an open book, but unfortunately it's illegible.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But despite his best efforts, I think he does manage to communicate some stuff. So... What I'd like to do is go into some songs where we think that there is something meaningful worth analyzing as a whole. I don't think it's hugely illuminating, but there are some songs that I'd love us to focus on because they are useful and give us new information. And one of which is Dear Friend. This song is funny because I feel like many people that aren't Paul fans tend to take this song as a really sweet song like they love it because they think it's super loving to john i've met a yeah. number of people that are like oh well dear friend is the one song i like by paul because it's really authentic
0: and it's well, like that's
2: right oh. there's there's an assumption i think be, maybe because uh it, it has that dear friend epistolary quality that this is paul extending an olive branch or apologizing yes. um maybe there are elements of that to it but if it's an apology, it has a very um, a very r- rude, but maybe semi-concealed gesture behind its back.
1: <laughs> well, I don't even think it's behind his back. And I actually don't think that there's an apology. You know, in the book, he says he could have called it What the Fuck, Man. And I actually think that would have been a much more appropriate title for it, given how I see the song. But, you know, you often hear things like, well, if only he had ended Ram with... Dear Friend, which A, would be a horrible idea because it doesn't go with the album at all. But B, you know, that's assuming that it's a sweet, nice, conciliatory gesture when it just has never seemed that way to me, given the sound of the song, which seems forlorn and bewildered and confused and sometimes angry and sometimes sad. And when you look at the lyrics, which are circular and confusing and questioning and can be looked at a, a number of different ways. But anyways, Paul does actually give us some illumination with this one. So let's read through what Paul says. Shall we okay. do that? You were so good last time. Oh,
2: do you I think, think so? You
1: I think so. I think you should. All do. right.
2: So, so you want me to be Paul? Like, Having been John, I now have to yes, be Paul. Yes,
1: Okay, just go paragraph by paragraph and let's stop and see if we've got anything to say. about All it. right, okay. sure. Just for anybody listening, this is not hugely prepared, so we're just going to react.
2: This is a words, cold read as we say in the biz. All right. Often I would think of John and what a pity it was that we'd argued so publicly and so viciously at times. At the time of writing this song in early 1971, he he'd called the McCartney album rubbish in Rolling Stone magazine. It was a really difficult time. I just felt sad about the breakdown and our friendship. And this song kind of came flowing out. Dear friend, what's the time? Is this really the borderline? Are we splitting up? Is this, you go your way, I'll go mine? <laughs> Without realizing it, Paul has rhymed. It's like he's written an additional line to the song. He could have sung, is this, you go your way, I'll go mine. And it would have fit into the song perfectly.
1: Well, and it would have been a lot clearer to everyone else too, probably to John too. It's interesting that at that time, Paul really wasn't able to be that clear. Because I've spent a lot of time... On wildlife and looking at the lyrics of wildlife, it's like he's incapable of being clear. I and I don't know if that's partly just his state of mind; he's so muddled, or if he just can't say what he wants to say in song because everybody's reading into their music, and you know, he's so private, so he's speaking in code. You know?
2: Yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, I think that the lyrics to this song. Are so brief. Um, there's a there's a very heavily laconic quality to them, you know, in comparison to someone like John, who if he's if he's angry or upset about something, will go into a tirade, like Lennon remembers, or he'll write litany-like songs, like God, and Paul's equivalent has such short, concise, laconic right. lines, and most of them are questions. Um,
1: <laughs> I think that is representative of the relationship. John comes and over communicates. And he said that I, I read a quote where John said that when whenever they were playing a game, he's the one that would get upset and angry. And I can imagine John just like ranting and Paul standing there never gives any information. In my mind, I can picture the two of them, John ranting and ranting and, and Paul just standing like in the Scottish moor saying, Why? What did I do? What do you want? Why are you doing this?
2: Yeah, I feel like the the questions are probably what provoked the song in the first place. They probably would have been playing in Paul's mind. Um, And they initiate this song. And the the, the portion of the song that, that contains these lyrics is less than half of the song. The other half of the song, at least, is Paul kind of sitting in the song's emotional energy and making these kind of wordless do-do-do-do-do noises or, um, you know, what's the name of the, the guy? Harry Nilsson, like, wow, 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 sort of. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to have a go at the song. I love it. It's just it's just curious to me that, um, that uh, most of the song seems to just kind of sit in its emotional energy in a wordless way. I think when he gets to the end of each verse and gets to that line, or is it true? That really heavy, low piano note is like uh, an exclamation mark or a door slamming or a punch in the face. There's, there's anger and defiance, at least in those yeah, moments.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think for me, this song has such a tension between being bewildered and sad and being very defiant and angry. And there's a tension in that last statement. There was the part of him that is angry at John, and then there's a part of him that's so sad, you know? Like, is yeah. it true? And it's also interesting. Like, I think John is able to be so verbose uh, and it's kind of the positions that they took. John went aggressively, like John is so angry and righteous in his anger, which is why I think he can be spewing all these things because he's very definite that he's in the right. And Paul is not. First of all, I don't think that even if Paul felt like he was in the, the right, I don't think he would have done the same thing. He's more diplomatic. But on the other hand, from the brevity of these lyrics, I just get the sense that he's confused about what happened. He doesn't feel validated in his position. Like he he knows he's right about Klein, but I think he's very confused about why John's so angry and what he did. And he doesn't have the same need to go after John. And I just I just think we have to think about like, why is John so righteous in his anger and Paul not? Where is this coming from? Is this just their personalities? Did something happen, interpersonally, beyond Klein? You know.
2: You know. Yeah, it's curious that um, that elsewhere Paul has been so adamant that he never really had a problem with any of the other Beatles, and it was just that Klein got in the way. And once Klein was removed as this source of all evil, um, they were free to be friends again. But there are other moments in this book included where Paul acknowledges that there were problems in the Beatles that predate Klein. Like he talks about how Linda arrived on the scene right as he and John were starting to either split or drift apart, which suggests this is more than just about Alan Klein.
1: Well, yeah, even in this write-up about dear friend, he can't get the story straight. Halfway through, he switches it and says that there was already problems in the Beatles. It's just... Well, let's go through this. I'll flag it. When halfway through this, he changes his tune about what happened. But he says some things in this first paragraph that I think are interesting. Again, no consistency whatsoever in this book. Even in this one song, it's like all over the place. This is where it would have been good if you would have had a proper biographer who was taking him to task. Like, could I just reconcile those two things? Because three sentences before, you said something totally different he says, we'd argue so publicly and so viciously at times. And he says, like in the next paragraph, this wasn't particularly vicious. Okay, so Paul, when were you arguing so viciously? I've spent a lot of time looking at all of Paul McCartney's interviews in the 70s, and he was never particularly vicious.
2: And I would probably say the same of John, even in something like Lennon and Remembers, I don't hear viciousness in what he's saying, especially when you listen to the audio of that, he doesn't sound vicious.
1: Yeah, when I listened to Lennon Remembers, I was surprised, actually, it was less bad than I thought it was going to be. Because the text is truncated. It's, you know, it's made to be as clickbaity as possible. But when you listen to John, He's ranting a lot. He's all over the place. He sounds kind of nuts, first of all, so you don't take it as, as seriously. But also, he's ranting about everybody. And when you actually look at what he says about Paul, it's not that bad. What he does that is insidious is he starts to position Paul in a way that's middle of the road. That's You know what I mean? Like His words actually aren't vicious. But what he does do is deposition Paul in a way that is ultimately very detrimental and i don't even know i don't think it's yeah. necessarily strategic
2: yeah i agree with you that he's he's kind of rambling in a way that doesn't suggest a really purposeful malign intent And I think that's what vicious really means, purposefully malign.
1: Right. I get the sense that John feels wounded and he's speaking from a place of anger and hurt and he's just kind of getting it all out, you know, feeling like the victim. And so it's not malign intent as in it's strategic. It's like when a couple's in a fight, they say all kinds of things that they don't really mean. And unfortunately, that was John in this interview that, you know, got taken way too seriously. I guess to play devil's advocate, I think it felt vicious. And also, How Do You Sleep is vicious. Yeah, and, you know, this is vicious. Paul talking 50 years later. And, you know, he's probably conflating all of them. And that was vicious because John knew putting that out the way he did was going to really destroy Paul's reputation. And he has said that in the past few years. And he actually he even said that in an Australian interview that the song he could deal with, but he knew how influential John was and he knew what it was going to do to his career, and it did do that.
3: At the height of their fame in the late 60s, the partnership collapsed. It was an ugly and public divorce.
4: I know the most difficult period was when uh, John, when the Beatles had broken up and John was downing me in public. Um, That that was probably the worst to take because I knew he's got an opinion that a lot of people listen to. It was just a critic saying, oh, can't well, McCartney's stupid, you know. But when it was John sort of saying things like, all you ever did was yesterday, I mean, uh, uh, that, that's hurtful.
1: But it was we pretty were, savage. We were it was very
4: savage well, stuff. I, I don't know if it was that savage, actually. He just, he just sort of said, you know, as was a total drip and all this. But his general portrayal of you as, you know, a lightweight and uh, yeah. that whole era. Yeah. That well, hurt. I'll tell you what hurts about it. I knew it would stick, like mud to the wall. I knew it would stick. It's a public hurt. Actually, in private, I made my peace with him before he died.
1: But anyways, so this idea of we'd argue so publicly and so viciously at times. John did go after Paul in 71 when he was sort of spiraling in the Melody Maker. And like the letter to Linda, the most vicious letter was to Linda, yeah, you know, like what middle-aged crank. In, in Paul's mind, there was viciousness, you know. But also he says... At the time of writing this song in early 1971, he'd called the McCartney album rubbish in Rolling Stone magazine. And I think it's important to realize that what Paul is responding to, you know, you always hear this story about Paul started it with too many people. And I always think that's such bullshit. McCartney is sitting there reading a, a copy of Rolling Stone, listening to Plastic Ono Band, both of which trash the Beatles. So I think that John wasn't, vicious about Paul directly, but he was vicious about going after what Paul loved and what Paul held sacred. And I think that was vicious to Paul.
2: Yeah, good point.
1: And also he said he would call the McCartney album rubbish. Paul doesn't talk about how hurt he gets, you know, this is his partner and for all he knows, John left the Beatles. So he puts out his first album and then John turns around and trashes it. I mean this is the first time they've remarked on each other's albums. You know, They haven't had years of remarking on each other's albums. And I think that probably took Paul by surprise, like, what, you're gonna go after me? Weren't you the one that wanted to leave? And the fact that he calls it out here means that it really hurt that John went after McCartney.
2: If only Paul had had the presence of mind to respond to that accusation of McCartney being rubbish by saying, well, then you clearly haven't listened to what the album is about. The album is literally about how one person's trash is another person's treasure. There's a song about it called Junk. So if you're gonna call my album Junk, I will redirect you to listen to that song.
1: (laughs) But that's the thing about Paul McCartney. There seems to be wisdom that flows into his music that he's never able to articulate Verbally. And that gets muddled when talking to the press. But then he goes, dear friend, what's the time? Is this really the borderline? Are we splitting up? Is this you go your way? I'll go mine. This statement is really interesting and tells us a couple of really important things. One, by this point, Paul was so angry and frustrated that he was almost done. Because I think he's serious when he says, are we splitting up? Is this you go your way? I'll go mine. As in is this the end? You know, I, I think that he's had enough. And is this really the borderline? You know, it, it's sad. Is this really it? Have you changed so much? But I also think it gives us a piece of information that he's saying, are we splitting up? In other words, they don't think they've split up by 1971. All of this public fighting And the lawsuit really meant nothing to them in terms of connection. You know, we see the outside of them fighting in the news and going to court about business things. But I I fundamentally believe that they still, underneath it all, felt like they had this unbreakable bond. Yeah. John says in 1972 that, uh, I'm going to butcher this quote, but this idea of I still believe in all you need is love. You know, people say that it didn't work out for the Beatles, but nothing can ever break our love. Mm. And so I feel like it's like when a, a couple breaks up and they know they're going to get back together. In some ways they're so deeply connected and <laughs> they're literally in court. It's like a married couple going to court for a divorce. And then one of them going, yeah, but like, do you really think we're over? And remember, Paul says that John called him like a couple months later. And he was like, John called me and said, well, what if the bubble bursts? And he's like, the bubble did burst. So I think both of them are dealing with this. And so I think Paul's line here, is this the borderline? Are we splitting up? Is really important. It says, gives us so much insight about the breakup period. Mm. That none of them thought the split was for real i think that they just assumed that they would never truly be broken up Mm. and later john says that it was a mistake it's like the whole premise of the breakup series is that things this was a game that went awry and that things spun and i Mm. think it spun and spun and then all of a sudden they've gone through a court case and then all of a sudden john is so upset and then acting out and paul is like is this how you really feel now? Like, is this the end? Yeah. I mean, it just reflects to me that they are living in a different reality. It's kind of like a delayed reaction. I think John starts to go crazy in 71 because it's both hitting them that this is becoming a reality.
2: Well, yeah. And I think it's another complication to this um, public claim Paul is making that John instigating the split in 1969 is this sort of seismically destructive Thing full of finality, and yet he's saying right here, two years later, he's still asking the question: Have we broken up or not?
1: Right, and then a month or two after that, John's calling him saying, "Well, would you think the bubble's gonna burst?" Like literally, guys, you've already been through a court case to destroy your company, and you're still like, "What do you think?" I mean, are, are we still together? You know, there seems to be an ongoing emotional interpersonal relationship that continues and that isn't finished and then there's like the business of the band, and they're kind of two separate things.
2: Towards the end of 1969, John had quite gleefully told us it was over. There were a few of us in the Apple boardroom at the time. I think George was away visiting family, but Ringo and I were in the meeting, and John was saying no to every suggestion. I thought we should go back playing smaller gigs again, but the answer came back, no. Eventually John said, oh, I've been wanting to tell you all this, but I'm leaving the Beatles. We were all shocked. Relations had been strained, but we sat there saying, what, why, why, why? It was like a divorce, and he he had just had a divorce from Cynthia the year before. I can remember him saying, oh, this is quite exciting. That was very John, and I had admired this kind of contrarian behavior about him since we were kids. When I first met him, he really was a bit loony in the nicest possible way. But whilst all of us could see what he meant, it was not quite so exciting for those left on the other side.
1: Yeah, well, there we get the gleeful word again.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's swimming large in his mind, that word, isn't it? It comes up at other points, gleeful. It sounds... It's similar to vicious in a way, isn't it? It does suggest this kind of, yeah, like I say, a malign intent, actively enjoying destroying Yes,
1: something. yes, yes, yes. And, but, and I think that's important. You know, as much as I talk about Paul and his spin, of, it's not even spin, it's kind of, you know, strategic. But I, I do pay attention to those words, the gleeful and the vicious, because I think that's what it felt like to Paul. You know, like in this book, he brings it to life. I think it's seared into his soul and his memory that John was excited and gleeful and that John was going after him and he doesn't know why. And I think that that's probably still a tension in Paul's soul. Like, what did I do to make you do this, to make you happy about hurting me, you know? And even in this paragraph, it's interesting that he basically outlines kind of shitty behavior frankly and then he kind of always tries to wrap it up and not make john i think he's always split between portraying it how he felt and then not trying to make john look too bad cuz he sort of understands john's perspective but it, and you, it, you get this weird kind of like well you can't blame him and you know that's what made him interesting it's like no paul could you just explain john was you know in a manic episode and it really hurt and it was Shitty. So can we not portray it as John was doing something cool? But like when he's coming in and gleefully laughing and saying, this is exciting. I mean, John just sounds like a madman, you know, to be like, oh, my God, this feels so good when you know people are hurting, you know.
2: And I, I think I know what you mean. Um, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but the way I sometimes think about it is they speak about breaking up very differently in January. Uh, and they talk about it in a way that suggests Well, it might be the best thing for everybody. And we've talked about it before and it's getting near it now. And, you know, at least we can be sensible about it and we can have an amicable split and not an acrimonious split. And this seems Mm. to be the position that Paul is taking early in the year. Um, and, And John's response to that in September seems to be a way of saying, look, Paul, every relationship ends badly or it won't end. If you can sort of casually walk away from this and shake hands and say everybody's happy with this decision, I suspect that you never gave a shit about this in the first place.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that John would have hated that nice amicable split. Mm, exactly.
2: That would
1: have been that would have broken John's heart. Because that would suggest there was no real emotion there and it was false. Yeah. You know, which is the the word that he uses a few days later. So the fact that he can come in and do this high drama and hurt Paul means Oh, it did mean something. And I think that to us, looking at John, sort of understanding his highs and lows, and it makes sense. It's not like he just wants to purposely hurt Paul. It's more that he finds it exciting because he's got power and he's got finally recognition that he matters and this thing matters. You know, this whole point that we talked about in the last episode of it got false. Like you said, I think that that is the worst thing in the world for John to think that they are just business partners. Because it's not for John.
2: Yeah. Can I draw attention to something that he says? Um, Sorry if this is a retread of something that you talked about in the breakup series. But I find it really interesting that Paul should say John was saying no to every suggestion implying that Paul was making a bunch of suggestions, and yet he only gives the common example we always hear of, let's go back to small gigs. And I agree with you in the breakup series, there was no other suggestion. That was the the one sole suggestion that Paul was making, which John said no to. It's actually John two weeks late earlier in a previous meeting that is making many suggestions, and Paul is the one saying no to them.
1: Right. For anybody who hasn't heard the breakup series, we made the point that the way they tell the story makes it sound like Paul's slightly delusional. And it's like, and what about if we did that? And what about if we do the other thing? Like there's one idea that Paul came up with, which is let's go back on the road and do small gigs. And we'll call ourselves Ricky and the Red Streets. So that was the one thing he said. And John said, no. And when they position it this way is like, John just couldn't be persuaded. It sounds like Paul tried a bunch of things, But it really isn't that way. Like when you realistically look at what happened, you know, if you go back two weeks before, John actually did suggest three or four things. Maybe we do an album where each person gets four songs and Ringo gets two. Or maybe we do a Christmas single or maybe we do my song, Cold Turkey. And it was Paul who was immovable on any of these. You know, I I don't know if he was saying no, but he certainly wasn't saying yes. So one can understand if that's the actual situation, why... Paul turns around and finally offers another suggestion and John's just like fuck it I don't want to do that and you wouldn't choose any of mine and I'm out and it feels good cuz you look devastated and you just devastated me in the last meeting when you just turned down everything because now in the way that Paul is telling this is that they were totally taken aback and can I remind everyone here this is coming from the man that just wrote goodbye and the end and you know, I don't know if Paul realizes what he puts out in the world and then is shocked when John is like, okay, I'm leaving. <laughs> You've been telling me all year, that you're done. He tells it both ways, that I could tell things were ending, that the Liberty Bell was in May, and then he goes and writes the end. But at the same time, they are talking about their next album.
2: That's right. And, you know, the way he tells it here, um, it was not quite so exciting for those of us left on the other side. It sort of positions John on one side of this ballroom table, all of the other Beatles, present or not, on the other side of the table. And at the end of this gleeful, vicious moment, John storms out of the room never to be seen again. Uh, maybe he's forgotten the fact that, that what happened next was that they all signed this deal with Alan Klein and posed for pictures. Um, but that seems to be a, a, a significant elision in the way he tells this, don't you think?
1: It is. Can't you see, Paul, he's playing games? Like, if John was really serious about this, do you think that he would be signing a deal 10 minutes later? I get the fact that he gets more money and it was a good deal, but it also bound them together. So the fact that John is saying he's out while signing a deal is kind of like the ultimate safety net for him. And I I just wish that Paul would recognize as an adult 50 years later and just say, yeah, you know, John did that and it was hurtful and he was manic at the time. And I think he both wanted some space and he wanted to hurt me. But, you know, at the same time, he he walked it back pretty quickly and he didn't wanna let me out of the deal ever and we did sign together. So there was a little bit of a contradiction in terms of his actions and his words.
2: Paul seems to ignore, whether consciously or not, um, the extent to which John might've been out in, like he sings on Revolution. He's kind of saying, I want out, but he's kind of demonstrating he wants to stay in. He's ignoring all of the in stuff, like signing the contract five minutes later. But that's what i mean that's what i mean yeah, the, I yeah think that's there's also I mean. another side to this where paul he chooses to ignore or misremembers the extent to which he too was kind of out and he he sort of characterizes it as this giant sort of opposite black and white thing in which he's right. all in and john's all out when it's much more complex and there's elements of in and out to both of them in their own you know unique ways
1: right and in this telling of it. He positions himself as the victim that's kind of Mm -hmm. taken by surprise. And not only is he the victim, he's kind of the pathetic victim, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, that really had no power and that was super sad and was like, what, why, why would you leave me? And then, you know, three songs later, he talks about how John had to go where no person had ever been before. And, you know, John goes off to his own hero story. So, you know, not only does Paul actually give away his power, I think what you're saying is true. And what what is frustrating is he's sitting in his own hurt 50 years later. It's like he regresses to that position of being hurt. And I wish that the mature adult could look back and say exactly what you just said, that there was a deep, deep contradiction in terms of what John was doing. And I think we can conclude from that, that John wasn't definite. And Paul knows that John wouldn't let him out of the contract. Paul knows that, you know, there was reach-outs in the next six months. Paul knows that John was hurt when he quit the Beatles. So he is ignoring all of those things, like you said, and the, the the point that he he doesn't even recognize. Like, I wonder if he can't see how much that would have hurt John, that he didn't want to do cold turkey and that he wrote the end and how much that would have scared John. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, I get the impression that... Um, the further paul moves away from these events in time the less nuanced his appreciation of them becomes and the more black and white they become and you see this happening to his stories generally which is why i think this might be an example like an innocuous example is the fact that when he talks about writing um here there and everywhere and and the boots story of john saying you know i like your songs on this better than mine the first time i I read him relating this anecdote. It was full of nuance and uncertainty. He said it might have been here, there, and everywhere. Might have been a different song. I don't really remember.
0: Yeah.
2: And yet, the more time passes, the more certain he is that it was that particular song, despite all evidence to the contrary. So I think that's a sort of an innocuous example of how. Uh, the more the more Paul moves away, the more these kind of things be, they loom larger, but in more black and white or cartoony ways, in in two dimensional ways.
1: I think that's a great point, and I also think that he zones in on the emotional impact that that's the memory that that yeah, remains, yeah. and and this is where I think. I get frustrated with authors because this is how Paul tells the story now, that he was so hurt and John left and we all sympathize with Paul's position. But again, as writers and you know anybody who's deeply into this does have the responsibility to say like, okay, Paul, thank you for telling us that that's the way you felt at that time. But could you also explain how you felt two weeks before when John was suggesting a bunch of things that you poo-pooed or didn't go for? And can you acknowledge that that probably hurt his feelings too. Like, could you Mm. acknowledge your role in it, Paul? And could you acknowledge the fact that John threw out a lot of feelers after that, which you didn't respond to, and that would have hurt him too. And you gave him no place to go.
2: Yeah. I'd been keeping largely quiet about John and the Beatles split up in the press. I didn't really have many accusations to fling, but being John, he was flinging quite a few in interviews. He had accused me of announcing the Beatles breakup to promote the McCartney album but I was just answering Apple's press questions honestly. I didn't want to do interviews to promote it and Peter Brown and Apple had asked questions like, are you planning a new album or single with the Beatles? My answer was, no, I saw no point in lying.
1: This is interesting because when John talks about the breakup and the divorce meeting, he sort of portrays it that it was Klein and, and McCartney who told him to be quiet. and. In London remembers, he's close enough to it to remember that Paul didn't actually tell him to be quiet. But, Mm -hmm. you know, he was certainly glad that John was going to be quiet. And I can see Paul being like, let's give him some time to see if he changes his mind, because this is a John Lennon that said he was Jesus Christ like a year and a half ago or a year ago, you know? But I think that the narrative seems to take Paul's announcement as being a betrayal, you know, tricking John into being quiet and then announcing it himself. But there's no evidence that Paul actually said to be quiet about it, because even two months later, when he's asked about it in Life magazine, he does make the announcement that the Beatles thing has exploded, you know, or what is what is the actual? um,
2: Uh, The Beatles thing has ended. It's something like that. And then he says it has been exploded, partly by what others have done and partly by what we have done. Uh, uh, Paraphrasing, but that's basically it.
1: I mean, to me, that should absolve Paul from the Paul quits the Beatles statement four months later. I mean, he was Mm. putting it out there. I think Paul gave John a couple of months to change his mind and maybe wasn't even listening. You know what? Paul probably thought if he's giving feelers in the press, fuck him because he can call me, you know, after doing that to me and laughing at my pain, he can call me if he really wants to get back together. So maybe Paul did hear him and just be like, well, it's not enough. And then at some point just as yes. like you know i'm putting it out there i'm tired it's this this is bullshit
2: i think all it is is maybe being a little bit disingenuous in some of what he says here um he has this line i was given questions and i just answered them honestly what else was i going to do lie i think paul those aren't your only two options this is a questionnaire that is being sent from your publicity department at your company. If you don't want to answer a question, you can leave it blank and it won't go out with copies of McCartney. You clearly wanted to answer those questions and you answered them in a way which is similar to the lyrics of Dear Friend in that they are very laconic and very brief and there's a kind of a a defiant, maybe even a slightly um, aggressive quality to no full stop. And so he clearly wants to communicate that. Um, you know, yeah, that's, that's even good. leaving aside all of this stuff about whether as Derek Taylor or, or Peter Brown have suggested, Paul wrote those questions himself.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I I think Paul is a bundle, you know, he talked about he talks later about Lenin being a bundle of Lennon. I think that Paul McCartney is a bundle of McCartney contradictions. I, I see this yeah, time yeah. as Paul being so pulled in two directions, you know, he's hurt, he's trying to do the right thing and be quiet. He wants to tell the world. And I think underneath it all is simmering anger that he can't quite own. And uh, and it just seeps out, you know, it still yeah. seeps out. He does say that I've been keeping largely quiet about John and the Beatles, which he did. He went <laughs> self-isolated. He, he stayed as far away from the press as he could. When he was found, he kind of said, well, the Beatles thing has exploded. Like Paul's unable to own his own righteousness in this situation and just say, yeah, I could be a shit sometime, but they were, they were treating me badly. Like, I feel like Paul is so wrapped up in, was I wrong? Do I have the right to be angry? Do I have, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I get with Paul in this, this time.
2: John would say things like, it was rubbish. The Beatles were crap. Also, I don't believe in the Beatles. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. Those were quite hurtful barbs to be flinging around, and I was the person that were being flung at, and it hurt. So I'm having to read all of this stuff, and on the one hand, I'm thinking, oh, fuck off, you fucking idiot. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, why would you say that? Are you annoyed at me, or are you jealous, or what? And thinking back 50 years later, I still wonder how he must have felt. He'd gone through a lot. His dad disappeared, and then he'd lost his uncle George, who was a father figure, his mother, Stuart Sutcliffe, Brian Epstein, another father figure, and now his band. But John had all of these emotions wrapped up in a ball of Lennon. That's who he was. That was his fascination.
1: Whew, okay, so the, the next two are the mega paragraphs. Um, <laughs>
0: okay.
1: Okay, so the first part, John would say things like, it was rubbish, the Beatles were crap. Also, I don't believe in the Beatles. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. Those were quite hurtful barbs to be flinging around. And I was the person they were being flung at and it hurt. And I think this is really important. And Paul is giving us a good piece of information. What John said in Plastic Ono Band was partly aimed at Paul McCartney. Mm. Um, At least Paul McCartney felt like it was. And I think that is never acknowledged in the situation. You know what I mean? Like Plastic Ono Band is all about the demons dealing with his childhood and childhood hurt. Like, can we just acknowledge the fact that John is having a meltdown when his pseudo family is breaking up. All of a sudden he has to institutionalize himself and deal with family trauma because his second family, the Beatles, are falling apart and so he writes this album and this idea of i don't believe in the beatles i don't believe in jesus i don't believe in god you know i was the person they were being flung at and it hurt like paul sees that as a direct criticism of him and it hurt
2: yeah like just to give another example from plastic Ono band when i used to listen to the lines um i don't expect you to understand after you've caused so much pain but then again you're not to blame you're just a human a victim of the insane they always befuddled me a little bit i thought these are oddly specific things
0: to be hurling
2: at at, a a, a non-specific listener uh you know every man human being and um When on the the Plastic Ono Band box set that came out earlier this year, you hear John occasionally singing, at least, I don't expect you to understand after I've caused so much pain. He he sort of flips it in a way that suggests these lines might be about the Lennon-McCartney relationship. One, two, three, four.
3: I don't expect you understand after i've caused so much pain but then again not to blame
0: just a human
1: well i think there's that additional element didn't you say you get
0: that's right right.
1: so it also seems like it's somebody in a relationship who is going back and forth, being like, oh, shit, I caused pain, and then getting back into their anger again. I
3: don't expect you to understand after you've caused so much pain. But then again, you're not to blame just a human a victim of the insane you
1: get seems like in how do you sleep you cunt and babe and you know you can tell when he's speaking to somebody because it's kind of off sides and you know before god he has this ramble about like being sent from above about our love and it certainly isn't about yoko because it's something very aggressive and angry that he's talking about how he doesn't believe in that. And then I just noticed there's a whole section to I found out on the elements mix. These are the lyrics, my baby left me never said a word. Was it something that I'd done or something that she heard?
0: Hmm.
1: Which is interesting in the context of that song. I mean, he's with Yoko. So who left him? And if you look at John's behavior post 70, like post Paul's quitting, he seems to take the position of being the left one. You know what I mean? Which is so weird because yeah. Paul, in all his portrayal right now, is he's the one that was definitively left, whereas John mm. seems to be always in the hurt position after 1970. So it's just interesting that he that's what he ad-libbed.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's like the ad-lib, which is cut from the Lennon box set in, a, in an earlier take of God. Where he goes into this funny little thing about um, it, it's in the um, the acoustic guitar early take of God, and he's just kind of vamping away on the acoustic guitar song about our love.
5: That, and exactly. Now
2: and, That's know, what i was who's, talking who's, about. Who's just and, and who's living on a farm, Paul McCartney?
1: Exactly. That's what I mean about that that like that God intro section that is he's vamping on. It's like the first time I heard it, I was like why doesn't everyone realize this song is directed partly at Paul? Like, I do agree that he's going after all the sacred cows, but I think that McCartney is a key um, target of this song.
5: I had a message from above And I'm here to tell you That this message concerns our love To send me to deliver this to you. Now, hear me now, brothers and sisters. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. Yes, we do. In
1: fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that I think the breakup with McCartney absolutely shook his worldview. I truly believe this because John had the more insecure childhood. Paul was just foundational to him. Like I think when Paul walked away, it destroyed the foundation of John's beliefs. You know, if he can't count on Paul, then what does he have? I guess he has a new life with Yoko. I think that's where... He decided to go, but I I think it was heartbreaking to him. And that's what you hear here in this song is such massive disillusionment. John's frankly, the more idealistic when it comes to these things. And so I think when Paul eventually gave up, it absolutely stunned and it disillusioned John to such an extent that he, he went into this crisis and I say specifically Paul because, really, George and Ringo never walked away.
3: ¡No sé!
5: the rebel rousers. I don't believe in the Beatles. Yeah. I don't believe in the Beatles. I'm what, what what were the Beatles? I don't believe in the Beatles myth. Yeah. You know? I don't believe I don't believe in the Beatles. Yeah. You know? there's no other way of saying it, is that I don't believe in them. You know, the, the whatever they were supposed to be, you know. In everybody's head and including our own for a period. I don't It was a, it was a dream. That's all. I don't believe in the dream anymore.
1: And I think it's absolutely no coincidence that when Paul and John reconcile in 1974, and they start to talk about writing together, John writes number nine dream. Yeah. It's like he used the song God to wound Paul. And Paul is saying here, that he heard it Mm. and so what does John do when they're getting closer together he turns around and he signals that he believes again of course it's exactly the opposite song of God both john and paul have talked about the fact that they believed in each other in the beatles more than anyone that's partly why i called my podcast one sweet dream is that they believed in this dream interesting to me too because they had this conversation in 1969. There's a recording of it where John Paul and George are talking about how they weren't their authentic selves. Or Paul is saying that we should have just been ourselves, and then John said, says, "Well, we found out, didn't we? We really found out who we were." So it's a statement that he's used in sort of a accusatory way before about something. Like when I read that, I was like, "What did you find out? Could you be a little more specific, please, John?" Yeah. But then it, then it's interesting that he's taken that term and used it in this song. But anyways, I think that that's important that Paul has taken in the words and he never liked Plastic Ono Band. He's very generous about John's work in general, but I've always noted that he didn't have much to say about Plastic Ono Band, which is John's most legendary album.
2: Yeah, um, he just said that he preferred Imagine.
1: Right, w- which is like a diss- Paul McCartney you know (laughs) so then he says so I'm having to read all this stuff and on the one hand I'm thinking oh fuck off you fucking idiot which I like I'm like because he is trashing what you two built together and that is sacred to to you so fine be angry at him but on the other hand I'm thinking why would you say that are you annoyed at me or are you jealous or what and I think that's interesting his immediate reaction is to be angry but then he flips And gets curious about, like, why are you saying this? Like, that's like the curious part of Paul of, like, what is driving this? You know, he's like, why would you say this? And I love the fact that he says, are you annoyed at me or are you jealous or what? There is a recognition from Paul, even early on, that jealousy is playing a big role. But then I find this really incredibly interesting. And and it didn't make sense to me the first few times I read it. He says... And thinking back 50 years later, I still wonder how he must have felt. He'd gone through a lot. His dad disappeared, and then he lost his uncle, George, who was a father figure, his mother, Stuart Sutcliffe, Brian Epstein, another father figure, and is now his band. And I was like, why is he going into this? And I think, I don't know if he recognizes this or can articulate it, but I think he's talking about John's feeling abandoned by people. He's just listed a bunch of people who have left John and, and so it's like he doesn't put two and two together for us, but he says that John was extremely aggressive and he didn't know why. And he's like, you're fucking idiot. Why are you doing this? And then he isn't able to articulate what he means, but he does give us this information. So it's like he's saying, without saying it, I couldn't figure out why John was so upset, but then I realized he was probably hurting. I the
5: album... Which I was going to do and say to you, look, John, I don't want to talk about all that Beatles splitting up because it not only hurts me, but it's, you know, it always ends up looking like I'm blabbing off and just attacking people. I don't want it.
2: That's right. And I think you're you're absolutely right to say, um, you know, Plastic Ono Band is not just an album about how Paul has left him and, and... left him bitterly disappointed. There are, you know, other figures of abandonment in it, too. But those other figures obscure the fact that uh, for John, Paul is one of them. Um, And there's there's a really interesting instance of it during the recording of the Plastic Erno Band when it's John's 30th birthday and Alf shows up at Tittenhurst and John is, by all accounts, incredibly vicious and kind of gleefully so in what he's saying to you know, his own estranged father. But accounts of that confrontation say that John was also ranting about Paul.
1: I found that so interesting. I mean, there's two accounts of it. And one of them was more detailed that where they specifically called out that when he was done talking about Alf, then he turned to his other favorite subjects, which were Mimi, Julia, and Paul. And the fact that Paul was lumped in to all these other people that were so important who had let him down or abandoned him in some ways. And personally, I think that's part of this whole story is that John believed that he could be shitty to Paul and push Paul and do all these things, but Paul was never supposed to leave. You know, and potentially that's one of the reasons why he's so angry at Paul is that. Paul did leave. Eventually, Paul eventually married somebody who was just like, you don't need to put up with this shit. And maybe that's why Paul partly feels guilty is he knows John's background. And I this is this is total tin hat, you know, fan theory. Yeah. But I sometimes think that Paul felt the responsibility to not leave because he understood John's need, you know, and so part of him is him feeling guilty knowing this person Needed him not to leave, even if he treated him shittily, and even if he deserved to leave, you know. So yeah, maybe there's that kind of tension going on. There was uh, there was a musician on Eggpod uh, a while ago who talked about the fact that after a parent had passed away, he had started the band, and that made him feel very cocooned and safe. And when that when the band broke up, that actually forced him to deal with the the original grief as well as the grief of his band breaking up. And to your point that you just said. It's not that I think Plastic Ono Band or Janoff just had to do with Paul, but I think that they're connected. Like I think that you know both Paul and John have said that they were lucky to find each other immediately in this in these circumstances and I think that they're bonded on such a deep level that they kind of took the place of family and significantly other for each other. And so when they break apart, they both are forced to grieve Both their their family, their original family, and their secondary family. And I think it's very confusing to both of them, potentially. And that's why you see John immediately going in to deal with his original family trauma. But I think that we can't ignore the fact that he also has this very large looming trauma with a breakup with Paul. And Paul goes the other way. He has a family. He he, He creates a new family immediately, you know, with kids.
2: Yeah, he heals the wound as best he can. Yes. I tried. I was sort of answering him here, asking, does it need to be this hurtful? I think this is a good line. Are you afraid or is it true? Meaning, why is this argument going on? Is it because you're afraid of something? Are you afraid of the split up? Are you afraid of my doing something without you? Are you afraid of the consequences of your actions? And the little rhyme, or is it true? Are all these hurtful allegations true? This song came out in that kind of mood. It could have been called, What the Fuck, Man? But I'm not sure we could have gotten away with it that (laughs) day.
1: Again, in this, it's like this constant tension between hurt and anger and hurt and anger and empathy, actually. There's a little bit of it swings between his personal hurt, anger, and then he swings to empathy for John, which is an interesting brew. Um,
2: Well, for Paul to say... Are you afraid of the split up? Are you afraid of me doing something without you? Um, If that's a genuine fear of John's, that is like the the definition of jealousy. It's this paranoia that somebody who's meant to be yours is being taken away from you.
1: But Um, I, I love this so much. Finally, Paul acknowledges. That, like, I feel like finally we're getting to the truth here that Paul knows that John is afraid of him doing something without him. Because the jealousy thing, like the way a jean jacket takes it, is kind of like a professional jealousy, like who's going to be the more beloved. But I think when he's talking about jealousy, it's a possessiveness thing. It is, It of course it is, but I don't think anybody else sees it that way.
2: Well, They don't understand what jealousy is, let alone the Beatles.
1: The jealousy is that you're going to do something without me, and I want you to want me to be... Here And remember, John talks about this. We shared this little um, excerpt from John talking about Janov. And he said that the greatest pain was knowing that you need somebody more than they need you. And he's talking about his parents. But I think that that if he says that that's the greatest fear and pain that he can have, certainly this is going to manifest with his partner, you know, the, the fear that he needed Paul even emotionally more than he needed him. You know? And so, and I love the fact that here, finally, Paul admits that he knows that John is afraid of Paul doing something without him. He knows when he goes off with Linda, that hurts John. He knows when he goes with George Martin, when he does stuff without John, that hurts John. You know, he's got an inkling that that matters. And so I I loved seeing this articulated. I felt like finally, Paul, you're saying that. And then are you afraid of the consequences of your actions? And this is this is directly conflicting to everything that Paul has said. You know, this idea that John was gleeful. Well, here he's saying that, yeah, John may have been gleeful, but he was also very afraid, and maybe, maybe he actually regretted what he did and was a little bit afraid once he was out on his own. And it wasn't so much fun anymore.
2: Yeah, that's right. Afraid of the consequences of your actions. Like um, it's the same guy who would have a screaming match with Mimi over the phone and call her five minutes later and say, you're not still angry with me, are you, Mimi? Exactly. That's the guy who of the consequences of his actions.
1: Exactly. But then Paul says something else. This is the more mature Paul. The one in 1971 who actually really knows John. This is Paul getting beyond his own hurt and anger and recognizing that John's acting out because he's hurt and scared. And I think Paul, throughout their friendship, knew that John needed him. And I think he's confused because why is John acting like this? But at the same time, he also probably deeply understands that this is all coming from hurt and fear. You know, he keeps repeating that line. Are you afraid? Or is it true? Is this all coming from fear? Or is this, have you changed and you just believe the shit that you're saying? I think that Paul in 71 was quite wise. And he was feeling hurt by being attacked by John, but at the same time, deeply understood. This was John being afraid. And I wonder if saying this in this song, because I don't think it's a nice song, but I think saying this in this song might've connected with John because here it's, it's kind of intimate. Like, I know you, are you afraid? And John hearing that might have felt seen, you know, like he understands me Yeah. because we've got accounts of John telling other people in the seventies that other people that John hurt he would say, well, talk to Paul. He understands. Like there's this sense of they so deeply know each other. And Paul's very confused, but at the same time he knows. And it bugs me that right now we get a much less nuanced, less mature story from Paul. It's all about his hurt. He forgets how mature he was at that time, except in this when he actually does all of a sudden. Like, I think part of the reason Paul tells the hurt story is he knows people like it. When he's Uh, talking about his hurt but also he doesn't want to be blamed for the breakup but here he's got just enough time and space that he is able to go into this other part that that basically proves that he understands John and that a lot of his actions were in managing John at this period and there was a lot of power in that Gets to the song came out in that kind of a mood. It could have been called What the Fuck Man. And we were talking about this. I personally would have loved it if it had, because that is putting the onus on John. You know what I mean? Like that's actually being angry and being justified in this position. But Paul reverses it and says, Dear friend, is this really going on? That's probably the better way to deal with John Lennon. But just publicly, it gives a weird dynamic. It seems like Paul's always conciliatory with John versus angry and John's always angry. Whereas I think Paul is angry in this song, but he's not so angry that he's going to destroy the relationship. He's sort of, I think this is what he talks about when he says like, I really worked on it and he figured out how do I talk to John about this without destroying our relationship?
2: Yeah. I don't know. I, I like, uh, dear friend, because to me, dear friend, uh, it puts it in the epistolary mode, but in a particular one, it, it makes it sound like a dear John letter. I mean, literally a dear John letter. In this case, it's like he's saying, dear John, this is the hardest letter I've ever had to write. I love you so much, which is what makes this next statement so bad. I don't think that we should be together anymore. I know. I uh, I know that people will think that I'm insinuating that he and John were lovers now that I've said that it's, it's not what I mean. I think he's, he's going into that particular way of writing.
1: Yeah. He stops right before that. I mean, he stops right before. It's kind of like, if you don't stop, this is the end. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I feel like this song is.
2: Yeah. That, that's a fair point. Fair point.
1: No, but I think you're right though. That's very clever. And Paula's very clever. So it is probable that he is playing with this format. But he doesn't write, dear John. He writes, dear friend. And I think this is where he had to really work through his anger and and try to understand where John was coming from and then figure out how he reaches John. And he figured out how to let this be a warning that wasn't cold its friend.
2: That's an excellent point. Next little bit. Want- this is the bit okay. that, that really jumped out at me and I'll tell you for why.
0: Yes.
2: Did the three of us, George, Ringo and I, think of carrying on without John? No, I don't think so. No. We were such a unit, such a foursome. We joked about forming a group called the Threetals, but we didn't seriously consider it. It was never anything more than a joke. When I read that, I would say, Paul, that seems to me to misremember or misconstrue who was standing on either side of the Liberty Bell when it cracked. Because my understanding of those events, I understand as someone who wasn't there, but my understanding is that Paul was on one side and John was on the other side with Ringo and George. Uh, they're the ones who continued to work together through 1970, 1971. Paul is suggesting that that John left the boardroom, stormed off, leaving right. George right. and Ringo and Paul to pick up the pieces of the band together, when Paul is the one who stormed off to Scotland. Uh, I think Paul was very much more the outsider uh, than John, at least going into the time in which he wrote Dear Friend, and in no small part because he chose to be the outsider.
3: Well, and
1: that's the thing that what you're picking up is the way that Paul portrays it is that John went off and left the three of them. But that's not actually what happened. The person that went and distanced themselves and took off was Paul McCartney, got on a plane and went to Scotland and refused to talk to anyone. Meanwhile, John, George and Ringo are playing together. And the thing is, the three of them that were playing together that could have been like, are we the Beatles? But they never considered that. You know, without Paul, it's not the Beatles. And that's, again, what we were saying earlier. It's like Paul can't quite understand what the situation looked like to everyone else. Everyone else is like, well, John did, you know, say this, but we all knew, like I interviewed Chris O'Dell and she was like, "Eh, we all knew that this is the kind of thing that John said. You know, George didn't take him seriously. People around them were like, well, John's acting out. And I think it did suggest that there were issues for sure but nobody quite took it as the, the death sentence that Paul McCartney did. And so Paul doesn't recognize the fact that he left and that that might've been hurting the other three, you know, and he left for the, yeah. and, and all of their walking back. And frankly, if he would have returned, like there was the three of them to return to. And so it's not like, as you rightly have identified, it's not like John removed himself. Paul removed himself. And John may have said these things, but people say a lot of things, you know?
2: Yes. And if you'd like a deeper dive into what Diana's talking about, listen to our Instant Karma episode.
1: That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Which shows John's many, many reach outs over the next few months.
2: Um, Indeed. So. get <laughs> Did the three of us, George, Ringo, and I, think of carrying on without John? No, I don't think so. No, we were such a unit, such a foursome. We joked about forming a group called the Freedles, but we didn't seriously consider it. It was never anything more than a joke. We did do a few little bits and pieces together before we all went our separate ways. John and I, and Yoko, did the Ballad of John and Yoko. He enlisted me for that because he knew it was a great way to make a record. We're going round to Abbey Road Studios. Who lives near there? Paul. Who's going to drum on this record? Paul. Who can play bass? Paul. And who'll do it if I ask him nicely? Paul. He wasn't at all sheepish about asking. He probably said something like, oh, I've got this song I want to record. Will you come round? And I probably said, yeah, why not?
0: Okay, Is there just anything in
2: that little paragraph that you want to address? <laughs> <laughs> I can think of one or two things.
1: I can think of a, a couple of million things that we could talk about. <laughs> this is the problem with the lyrics this one write-up is all over the place in terms of paul's perspective you know like a page back he's saying things like why is this argument going on is it because you're afraid of something are you afraid of the split up are you afraid of my doing something without you are you afraid of the consequences of your actions like there paul's getting real for a second saying he knows how much john cares and how Hmm. deeply tied John is to him and their partnership, you know, and I loved that little bit of honesty. And then two paragraphs later, he acts like John couldn't give a shit, whether it's Paul or Ringo that he invites to the studio. <laughs> you That's know, right. Who like,
2: lives oh, near there? Let's just knock exactly, on random houses.
1: <laughs> exactly. I, oh, I know this guy named Paul, whatever his last name is, he'll probably do it. Like, Like he positions himself as he's just some random person that John knew he could wrangle into getting to the studio don't you find like that's hard
2: yeah the the thing that throws me the most about that little paragraph is like the, again the timeline John's normally the one who will give a bizarre timeline that seems to go back and forward in time and, and compresses three years into three right. months and then does the opposite <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but Paul's doing a version of that here where he, he 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 alludes to the fact that the split seems to be this foregone conclusion before they record the ballad of John and Yoko, and refers to these little bits and bobs that happened as the Beatles played themselves out. And are right. we to believe then that Abbey Road is one of these little bits and pieces? <laughs>
1: We did this one little song and oh yeah, that other album that everybody considers our masterpiece, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way he says it in this paragraph is John had already made his statement and then he was like, uh, I need him for this one little thing that I'm doing. You know, mm. and Paul did him a, a solid and was like, okay, John, I know you want the divorce, but I'll show up for you. Like that's how it's kind of positioned. When again, two paragraphs before, they're talking about like, Two years later, after their lawsuit, they're still going like, are we actually separating? Are we broke? Like, what? And so that's why I wish Paul Muldoon would have stepped up and just said, hey, Paul, you know, like 10 minutes ago, we were just talking about the fact that you recognize that some of John's acting out was out of fear and hurt and possessiveness, Hmm. you know? and so it, there seems to be a disconnect here for when you're talking about the end of the band where it seems like he only tapped you to work on this for him because you were convenient to the studio like you know which is it is he possessive and having a hard time working without you or are you some random dude that he hooked in and you know of course he's not some random dude but i wish this is my frustration about paul is sometimes he switches into this mode where he positions john as not caring about him and i think that's what gives writers and fans the impression that john didn't care that much about him you know i don't know what do you think
2: i agree with you i think he he tends to go between extremes of we all really loved each other and nobody but us will ever really understand the nature of that deep bond And then he swings to this other extreme of, I guess I never really knew the guy, and he never (laughs) really knew me, and we were, you know, strangers waving at each other from either sides of a shore. the, The phrase that leaps out at me now is, he wasn't at all sheepish about asking you'd be sheepish about asking someone to come and make a record with you if you barely knew them.
0: And, you know,
2: <laughs> if it was a, if it was an imposition on that person, That's but if right. they are one of the closest people in the world to you and you're in a band together, they are the natural person to us.
1: <laughs> of course he's not sheepish. He wants it to be the next Beatles single. You are still the Beatles. I don't know if this is a Muldoon issue. And again, I'm being hard on Muldoon, but you know what? He was chosen as his partner that's his job to push Paul on these things and just say, Hey, you guys were still in a band together. It's pretty normal that he asked you, or is there something else we should be reading into that, that like, that John should have been a little sheepish because this was a John and Yoko thing. And this was, you know, asking his current partner about doing a song that romanticizes John and his new partner. But Mm. again, it's like this idea of the ballad of John and Yoko is a John and Yoko thing. It was written by John Lennon and finished being written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney and then yeah. recorded by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. So it's John mythologizing John and Yoko, but it's not a Yoko creative project.
2: No, I agree and it's it, my, it, her name sort of stuck out to me a little bit when I read John and I and Yoko did the ballad of John and Yoko. Um, because in my head and I think that I maybe I'm guilty of buying into some beetle related myth-making the ballad of john and yoko to me is the nurk twins reunited that's Um, right even though it's a song about john and yoko this is very much in the john and paul private space at least the creation of it and i know that
1: you're not buying into the mythology sorry to interrupt you but you're not buying into that because john in 1980 when asked about this Mm. by the interviewer and he said no that was me and paul So John says that. He corrects him and says, no, that was me and Paul.
2: Yeah, and I can hear how the the lyrical content of the song and the desire to record it for lunch and get it out for dinner, that's very John late 69 going into 1970. So there is an element to the way his creativity would develop with Yoko. But when you listen to the musicality of the song, it is pure John and Paul. It's it's the Beatles doing that little Latin number thing that goes all the way back to Hamburg and Oriman right.
1: Day. Mucho or be, be,
2: it's in Besame be be Mucho territory.
1: Which I love, by the me way. Too. I love their version so much. Boom. boom. So that was an interesting statement. He wasn't at all sheepish about asking. And I probably said, yeah, why not? And the one other thing he does here, and I think that this is an insecurity on Paul's part, I think he's reflecting an insecurity, is he realizes that he was always the one to show up. He knows he was always the one that would Mm. show up. He showed up for everything. He is like- He's the the workhorse of the Beatles. He's the workhorse and the consistency throughout the Beatles. He knows that they can all count on him. And I think he probably thinks they take him for granted. Mm. that like i'm just the one that they know will show up you know kind of devaluing it's like no paul they don't want you to show up because they know you'll show up and you can kind of play drums they know you you will make their song incredible mm. you will deliver and that i don't know if that's him being modest here it could be fake modesty
2: yeah i think it's also linked to a very here it's very subtle but a recognition of the fact that um they will want Paul to come and play on the record. They will know he, he will bring that secret source quality that elevates the song to a whole other level. And then they'll complain about how bossy and producery he was during the process. <laughs> That's and, and his frustration at them wanting to have it both ways. That's right. There was still a lot of loose ends to tie up. We still had all the business things to surmount. You have to remember, I sued him in court. I sued my friends from Liverpool, my lifelong friends in court. But in the end, I think playing on that session with him and Yoko contributed to our having quite a few friendly meetings and conversations later.
1: Hmm. I mean, again, insane. I'm I'm not quite sure when he thinks this session took place. But I feel like I'm getting insight into the argument that's constantly going on in Paul McCartney's mind. Hmm. He's angry. He's saying John should maybe have been sheepish. He understands John's perspective he all of a sudden is empathetic to john being insecure and being heard and knowing john's possessive and then he swings back to being like this is almost like paul mccartney's personal guilt trip like mm. i did sue them oh my god i did do that i get why they were angry with me don't you think
2: yeah it's hard to read when when he um, emphasizes that particular point which he is wont to do he does like to say things had gotten so bad that I had to take my best friends to court, but it was really a way of getting at Alan Klein or, you know, he'll, he'll throw in a a caveat like that, but he does once in a while go back to that point, doesn't he? And it's hard to know whether he's doing it because he has this sort of masochistic compulsion to dwell on something he's guilty about or whether he's he's using it in a in kind of roundabout way to defend how awful the situation had become or something.
1: Well, that's the thing is sort of functions to defend John.
2: Hmm.
0: You
1: know, I think he sometimes uses it as a rationale for why he forgave John is he hmm. was like, look, John was kind of shitty, but I did sue them. And that was kind of not great either I personally think that he is still conflicted about it. Like he's still slightly guilty. Remember he said that he, he's always still battling with guilt about this. And, you know, you see this constant fight about, did I do the right thing? I had to do the right thing. He was going to take all of our money. And then, then he's like, but I did sue my best friends. And he hasn't resolved. I wish Paul McCartney would just come to a conclusion. I had to do it. You know what? They weren't thinking clearly. Sorry, guys, you kind of forced this criminal on me, and so I had to do it. And so mm. it's just like, Paul, stop feeling guilty.
2: Yeah, it's a whole other can of worms to open. But sometimes the way Paul figures Alan Klein as the demon king or the demented sadistic dentist or the, um, I don't know, the the grasping, acquisitive, oily uh, louche salesman who would have run off with all of the Beatles' min- millions, as though that was even possible. Um, <laughs> right. It makes me think: a Paul Paul really pushes his ver- his version or his his reading of Alan Klein to this really distorted extreme, um, and it makes me think: is some of what you have to say and and some of how you feel about Alan Klein really projected frustration and anger at the other Beatles.
1: Oh, absolutely. It is especially at John. That's why I think it gets so convoluted because he has his relationship with the guys and he's very hurt. And he almost can't acknowledge that they treated him really badly by the three to one. Mm. And instead of saying, you betrayed me by forcing this guy on me, he instead deflects it and goes at, The guy that is actually the criminal and the bad guy. But it's like, Alan Klein owes him nothing. Mm. Alan Klein will try and, you know, take money from any rock star out there, Mm. you know? So Alan Klein really doesn't owe Paul anything. It's these guys that really were the ones that didn't take his thoughts into consideration. And for some reason, he can't blame them because he loves them. Mm. And John died. Even if he privately held some... Frustration at John in the seventies. Once John dies, I think he it just gets so mixed up. And you see this with John too. His extreme hatred of the Eastmans is not rational. Like calling them yeah. animals, in a, you know, in, is not rational. They are not animals. They are well-respected lawyers. And that, to me, is purely a projection of his frustration mm. of the fact that Paul he thinks betrayed him by mm. the split. And so I think they're both doing the same thing. But yes, I think you're right. It's all of Paul's emotional baggage gets put onto Klein. Yeah. I think, you know, this is all getting conflated, but I think there is something emotional to the idea of Paul has tied this to being the celebration of John and Yoko and the fact that he was willing to support it Mm. was important to John and Yoko later. You know, I I think fundamentally that that's what he's saying here is that eventually his support of them as a couple was meaningful to them and helped them connect in some ways, don't you think? Yes,
2: I think so, and and you know I, I would like to believe that because it it makes me think that. You know, that John and Yoko aren't awful people because you'd have to be a, a, an awful person not to re- not to recognize and appreciate that support I mean look at the picture that is associated with this entry in paul's lyrics book. It's a picture of John and Yoko sort of taking center stage on the paper sleeve of the single, but they're in Paul's garden, which is again that that other that measure of of how much he was willing to to acknowledge, support, encourage everything about them. It's certainly by this point in, in like mid 69. Is the, the other photo there with John Eastman, John Yoko Alan Klein, Ringo Maureen, and Peter Howard all sitting around this table in the Apple offices. Is that from the divorce day? Maybe not. But it looks like you, you it You know what?
1: Be. I, no, I think oh. it's from... This is kind of pathetic how much I know about this. But in my defense, I did do a number of episodes on September, like on September 1969. Otherwise, mm. I would not necessarily know what shirt Paul was wearing,
0: daily. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I do. Um, these are the pictures that were taken um, when he was doing that interview on the 19th. So I believe this okay. is the day before the divorce mm. statement when they lost Northern songs. Mm. But also I don't think that John Eastman was there when mm. John made the divorce statement. So, or Peter Howard or Maureen, according to the telling, but again, John and Paul don't really remember who's there other than each other. So I I don't know, I guess it could be, but I think it's from the day before
0: mm. sadly
1: based on Paul's shirt and his really terrible he looks terrible here yeah you know there's those there's those pictures of paul and linda holding hands and linda's looking at an album i forget what album she's looking at maybe maybe it was abbey road and they're talking to alan smith i think um giving that interview on the 19th there's photos and paul looks terrible like not good stubble bad stubble bad hair
0: Mm. and
1: terrible outfit and we got to remember he's got a three-week-old You know, so he looks like a dad. Got him some slack. (laughs) He got
2: him some slack, exactly. So sorry, we've gone off. We've strayed a little off topic.
1: Well, yeah, but that's what Paul causes us to do by his.
2: (laughs) I think this song, dear friend, also helped. I would imagine he heard it. I think he listened to my records when they came out, but he never responded directly to me. That was not his way. We were guys. It wasn't like boy and a girl. In those days, you didn't release much emotion with each other.
1: It's interesting because, as I just said before, the idea of Dear Friend also helped. You mean the song that you wanted to call What the Fuck, John?
2: (laughs) It really helped repair our relationship.
1: (laughs) So, you know, this is my frustration. is like, uh, okay, Paul, is this sort of a questioning? Like, hey, what the fuck, man? What is going on? that's not usually the kind of like conciliatory lovely sentiment that gets one to back down and feel soft and like oh you know what i'll put down my arms you know
2: yeah that's right uh it's like uh, he he spends a lot of this meditation um really confirming some of the things that we've talked about
0: yeah, before yeah. and
2: during this discussion that yeah. this is less of a sad Um, song more of an angry song than is popularly believed Um, less of a of a ceasefire uh, or olive branch than is popularly believed and now he does this about face and says but seeing as the song was a call for laying down of arms and an olive branch I think it would have helped
1: (laughs) it's kind of like hey John are you fucking for real this is us like have you changed? Did you forget? Like, what the fuck's going on, man? But the nice thing about that is that isn't me. I think that's when Paul says he had to go and think about it and, and rephrase it. I think he probably struck the right balance of not being like, it's not like, fuck you, man. And it's not like, I love you. Please stop, man. It's just like, what are you doing? And That's what this song is, you know? And so maybe when Paul says that, that's what he's saying, it snapped John out of it, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. You've got me thinking about how at various points in this book, a fair amount of frustrated anger at John seeps out in ways that aren't necessarily perceptible on the first reading. But when you go back and try and dig into some some of what he's saying there, you you can really start to get a stronger sense of it. And more than once in this book, Paul tells the story of John pulling down his glasses and saying, it's only me. And when I've heard him tell that story before, like, especially 20 or 30 years ago, it's usually given as an example of how John had this extraordinary ability to suddenly change the temperature of an argument so that you couldn't be angry with him anymore. But there's yeah. one occasion in this book where Paul tells the story of John pulling down his glasses, says, "It's only me," and suddenly there was a cessation of hostilities, and then we started arguing again. So mm. now it's only become like a brief hiatus in the argument. And there's another—I can't remember where it is in the book. But there's another instance. He tells the story more than once in this book. But there's he tells another the same
1: stories like many of the same stories, <laughs> many about John and the breakup. Do you know how many times he talks about the breakup in this book? I know. <laughs>
2: But that, there's a there's a really interesting moment where um, he again tells the story of John pulling down the glasses and saying it's only me, and his response is to go, okay, so who was that guy who was just yelling at me five seconds ago? Was that somebody else then? And he said that. He says that, and it's wow, that's that's extraordinary for him to kind of call bullshit on John in that way, sorry, John, you don't get to choose the best bits of yourself to be the real you and absolve yourself of responsibility of when you're at your worst.
1: I agree with you. I am shocked. Like when we saw the excerpts, it's largely about Lennon and his love for Lennon. And I'm just like, what book did you guys read? Because (laughs) this is the most anger I've ever seen Paul share. Hmm. And not only does he have anger, he has empathy for John. He tells that story, I believe twice, Like in this song that we just talked about, he talks about men leaving him, Mm. uh, like being a fear. And he talks about that at the beginning that John talked to him when they were teens about the fact that he thought he was like a jinx to the men in his life, Yeah, you know? And so he also understands how vulnerable John is. It's like in some ways he's explaining John saying, look, he did these things and this is why... I, I put up with some of this is he was vulnerable and fragile. And I want you to know that. And I was angry with him sometimes. I think that Paul was not a marshmallow with John. You know, the, it's only me and they have a brief second and then they go back to fighting shows that Paul was always fighting back.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true.
1: And then he says, that was not his way. He says, we were guys. It wasn't like a boy and girl in those days, you you didn't release much emotion with each other. But the idea of he, he's basically saying we were like a boy and a girl in terms of, we were talking emotion to each other, but we Mm -hmm. couldn't articulate it. So, So just my personal reading is he's saying like, the emotions ran deep. Yes. Doesn't necessarily mean they were in a romantic relationship, just the the emotions ran deep and a man and a woman might have actually expressed some of these emotions to each other and talked it through. But he said that even though we had these, we couldn't talk it out. And uh, in those days, you just didn't do that kind of thing. I, I, I suspect that it's difficult for men even nowadays, but...
2: Sure, you know, especially- but yeah, I, I certainly agree that for Paul to say you didn't release much emotion with each other is a roundabout way of saying there was a lot of pent up emotion.
1: That's right. We just put it into songs for ten years, you know. <laughs> so great, great. It filled our songs, and uh, and then I don't know if you noticed, but he also <laughs> ends up on this conclusion many times. Can you read the last paragraph?
2: Sure. I was very glad of how we got along in those last few years, that I had some really good times with him before he was murdered. Without question, it would have been the worst thing in the world for me. Had he been killed when we still had a bad relationship, I would have thought, oh, I should have, I should have, I should have. It would have been a big guilt trip for me. But luckily, our last meeting was very friendly. We talked about how to bake bread.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if you've noticed this, but this the, <laughs> this is kind of Paul's mantra too. But we ended on a good note. We ended. Yes. It's, it's all about bread. He's trying to one- convince
2: himself uh, more than anyone else that you feel the way he constantly harps on this thing. It was fine. We were really good. We had a great conversation. Everything was hunky dory. It's yeah. It, it, the the McCartney doth protest too much, methinks.
1: Well, it's also confusing too because. They legit had meetings in 1973 and 74, all of which were apparently very good. So Mm. this idea that they just had a few friendly conversations is not actually true. They had much more interaction than that. And so it's kind of like he downplays the actual connection that they did have in the 70s. You know, John was thinking about going to join Paul in New Orleans. But yes, this, this kind of like need to resolve it and say, we had a fight, but it was resolved. It's it's like something, it's a wound that he needs to be constantly healing. I don't know, to the public, to himself.
0: You know, yeah, something like about the way
2: he tells that story about the relationship ending on a good note it kind of imposes a slightly artificial narrative of resolution to the whole thing. Like we had a really difficult stormy time in the early 70s, but we managed to get it towards this lovely point of closure just before John got killed. And uh, I'm not Paul or John, so maybe they know a lot better than I do. But I at least see their relationship being more complex than that. And yes, as you say, there are certainly really, really good, encouraging, strong, close periods in the early '70s. And you know, by the other the other side of the coin might be the "fuck off" Kojak moments. Th- those are yeah. moments that are yeah. quite close to to the end, and suggest that it, it wasn't just a bad relationship that was slowly coming good. It was more 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 nuanced Bullard. and layered than that.
1: Yeah. But volatile in a way that suggests deep emotions. Like yes, you don't absolutely. Have those, that kind of volatility with somebody that you just don't really care about. It again suggests that their relationship had kind of resolved to something that was just trivial. We were talking about daily life mm. versus the actuality that we know that they were swinging back and forth in terms of like potentially writing together and flirting through music with each other and, you know, there was Mm. attempted reunions or these things were floating and they were in the air and there's a lot of support for that. And so the baking bread conversation makes it seem like it had, they had gone on with their lives and, you know, it had luckily sort of resolved into this lovely, like we were just, you know, general (laughs) friends by the end. And that just wasn't the case, you know? Yeah
2: unless I suppose baking bread is a kind of veiled way of talking about creativity and working together. But (laughs) I'm reading it into that, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're you're working really hard for that one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, but I think the baked bread is a metaphor for they got to the same place Mm. of like, for, for Paul, maybe that meant that I think the idea that John embraced happy family life is soothing to him Mm
2: -hmm. because
1: it has brought him so much solace and joy in life. The idea that John maybe found some peace and enjoyment in daily life is probably something that reassures Paul that maybe John did take the right route You know, maybe being with Yoko and having Sean was the right and baking bread was good because, see, he was happy. We could talk about baking bread. I was happy. You know, like there's a lot of things that are baked into this. That, again, I wish we could read about in his actual autobiography where he explained things instead of (laughs) us looking at his hieroglyphics and trying to (laughs) decipher them. (laughs) Maybe he needs this. But anyways, that is Dear friend, people. And actually, the story that is started here continues into a few other songs, you know, namely Mm. Too Many People. You Mm. see similar themes. Again, I'm surprised that the editor didn't say, hey, Paul, you've talked about um, the breakup 16 times on songs that have nothing to do with it. Are you sure you want to talk (laughs) about it again? But
2: Okay. Paul, I'm just reading through the manuscript here. Um, what you have to say about Golden Earth Girl is interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a song all about Yoko, is it? Okay.
1: <laughs> interesting that you were. She was. She was your inspiration. No, no, she wasn't. Okay. You want to maybe talk about your? No, you don't. Okay. I know. So. And that concludes our episode on Dear Friend. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that Duncan and I had recorded this episode rather spontaneously and without much consideration. We were just reacting to it, but that was over a year ago. And since then I have given it more thought both in terms of Paul's insights about the song, but also how he tells this story and the context he provides to tell this story. So basically, these are my additional meditations on Paul's meditations about dear friends. Okay, so when you look at how Paul's account is structured, he starts with regret. The things had gotten so vicious between him and John. Well, he corrects it. Not really vicious, but a little vicious. And then he moves on to some of his greatest hits, how he proposed the band move forward with small gigs until, lo and behold, John gleefully revealed that he wanted a divorce. And of course, Paul and the other Beatles were left behind, dazed, confused, and depressed. Then he moves on to explain the next period, which he says was a difficult one, where accusations were being flung. Well, not really by him, but certainly there were accusations being flung, and most of them were being flung by John Lennon. At him, specifically in interviews like the Rolling Stone interview and in his music. This is the first time I've seen Paul admit that he was the target of some of John's music from Plastic Ono Band. I've always thought that, but haven't seen that anywhere, so it was interesting. Specifically, he alludes to the devastating God, and it seems to have hurt him, to have been the target of John's disillusionment. And it was hard for him to hear that John no longer believed in the thing that they believed in so deeply. And so this wounded him and angered him to the point that he wanted to strike back, telling John to fuck off. But he didn't, he says, because he was struck by empathy for how John might be feeling. He ponders this for a while, what might have been driving John, and speculates that maybe this was coming from a place of hurt, And so he really crafted a song that would reach John. And then he moves on to focus on the partnership between John and Yoko and the hypothesis that his support of them is what led to some form of reconciliation between them or peace between them after the breakup. And I found that trajectory odd. As I mentioned, I find these meditations or commentaries by Paul like little puzzles that you kind of have to put together. And so I thought about this and I found when I took a step back and looked at the commentary and I thought about the song, I realized that in some ways, Paul is asking the same question and telling the same story. At the core of both of these, he's saying, why are you so angry with me? what did I do? What is going on with you? And why am I your target? Because I did everything you wanted me to do. I think this is the central mystery for Paul. He seems to be saying that you wanted out of the band, you wanted the divorce, you wanted to be with Yoko, and I supported you in all those things. I made the divorce happen. I supported you and Yoko. So why are you making me into the bad guy? the central mystery for Paul is that he doesn't know why John turned on him. And he confesses that he still really doesn't know. But then in the heart of this piece, there is insight. He explains that though he wanted to hit back, he was struck by the thought that John had lost so many people he loved, and now he was losing his band. And the term losing his band really jumped out at me because that's very different than leaving his band, which is the story Paul continually tells. And then he goes on to highlight how the song zeroed in on this fear that He wondered if all of this behavior was driven by fear and jealousy and possessiveness, fear that Paul would do something without him, fear of having to live with the consequences of his actions, which was basically blowing up the Beatles. So the very center of this piece, despite having told the story a million times that John wanted to leave the Beatles and wanted to go off with Yoko, Paul reveals that deep down he understood what was going on with John that he understood John's fear of abandonment, that he knew that John feared Paul doing things without him, and that he feared losing the thing that he loved, which was the band. And there we go. Paul knew. He explains that because he had an intuitive sense that all of John's vitriol was coming from a place of fear and hurt, he was able to take a step back from an aggressive fighting stance and figure out how to reach John. He wasn't quite ready to be nice or to concede or be conciliatory or apologize. But at the same time, he is expressing something. I personally think this song is so muddled because Paul is holding back anger, but at the same time, he doesn't want to ruin things. He's been hurt by John, but realizes that John's also hurting. So perhaps he's in a middle space and doesn't know what to say. And it results in this circular, opaque, mysterious song. But the thing is, it does manage to convey intimacy. He calls him friend and he speaks directly to him. Are you afraid? Are you a fool? As if to say, I know you and this isn't you and I don't know this guy. In fact, earlier in the book, Paul said that he'd often have to tell John that certain behaviors really weren't him and correct him. And he seems to be doing that in this song. And then he says, but if this is you, that maybe this is the end and maybe they have reached the borderline. It's a warning. And I I actually find it a rather devastating one. And I suspect John would have as well, because Paul sounds exhausted You know, he seems to be saying, if this isn't just coming from fear, if you believe this bullshit, then then maybe it is it for us. But it's both a warning and it's also an invitation for John to correct things because Paul gives him an out. Are you afraid? It's also a bit of a reprimand because he's saying, you look like a fool to me. But underneath that is the idea that I don't think that's you because I think you're afraid. It's also an invitation for John to reassure Paul. I think Paul desperately needs to be reassured from John that I'm reacting because I'm upset. I think that's what Paul needs to know, that John loves him and that all of this bullshit that he's putting out into the world about Paul being a square and conservative and that they never even wrote together, that all of that is not really what John thinks that Paul needs to be reassured that John still sees the real relationship, that they still have that connection, and that John still loves him, and that this is all just because of upset. That's what I think Paul needs. And of course, Paul also has the line, Dear friend, throw the wine, which seems to be an invitation to drink and forget their differences. Ultimately, despite its opaqueness, I think the song conveys Paul's heartbreak and confusion about what happened to their relationship and Paul's bewilderment about why John was going after Paul when he gave John everything he wanted, including, he seems to be saying, they found other people. Can't they just calm down because this isn't good? But of course, he lets his vocal delivery and the music and the orchestration do most of the talking in this song. It's there that he conveys sadness and regret and loss. Actually, when I was editing this, I thought... Am I going crazy, or is this sounding like some of John's demos later in the 70s? And then I thought, well, actually, this is starting to remind me of How Do You Sleep? And see some similarities in terms of the grandness of the orchestration in both songs, which suggests big-churning emotions in both songs. Perhaps Paul was a little more controlled about what he put out publicly, and he also had the strength to consider how to reach John with a message that conveyed anger and disappointment, but didn't make John defensive. Though I do think this song is, in some ways, just as devastating interpersonally just not publicly. In some ways, these reflect their personalities. John is almost pathologically needy, and Paul is pathologically unable to communicate clearly. Paul has to put up with John's antics and attacks, while John has to try to trigger some kind of emotional reaction from McCartney. And then he has to decipher what McCartney's reaction is and what his feelings may be. As an aside, I don't know how the public ever bought into this idea that John was happy to be rid of the Beatles. God is a staggeringly brilliant piece of work, but John sounds like a child rocking to soothe himself. And how do you sleep is a total meltdown. But I guess Paul even tells the story in a way that doesn't convey John's hurt, except in this little middle section, which I think is so important. He starts and ends the piece with the sense that John was happy to leave and happy to be off with Yoko. But it's too late, because he already revealed in the middle of this piece that he knows how much he meant to John. Deep down, he knows how much John is always responding to him. I just wish he would admit that more often. I feel like, and this is pure speculation, but I feel like if Lennon were to read this passage, he would be like, see i knew you knew what i wanted how i was feeling it's like mccartney talking about the fact that lennon wants to communicate in this elevated form through telepathy he alludes to this in get back and then he says but we don't have that
4: well that's that's, that's the trouble is it? because that's a, it's like with your, with our heightened awareness the answer is not to say anything isn't it but it isn't because i mean we screw each other up totally when we don't do that because we're not Ready for your yeah, <laughs> vows of silence? We're really not. I mean, we don't know each other's talking about. Know. You know, we all just sort
1: of get. But in some ways, Paul is showing that he does understand John, and I think John believed that McCartney understood him, and so should have been reacting. I think part of Lennon's great hurt afterwards was that McCartney never acknowledged how much. He had hurt him. And I think he was devastated that McCartney did not stop him from leaving. It's like Paul was supposed to know that he does these things. Paul was supposed to stop him so that he didn't have to deal with the consequences of his actions. You know, Paul was supposed to know that he was acting out. And if Paul couldn't figure that out, that maybe certain things like the postcards to McCartney at Christmas 1969, saying, we love you and see you soon. And the messages in instant karma would make it clear to Paul that there was an opening. But Paul didn't react. And he walked away, which is why I think John was so devastated afterwards. That yes, he said something, but they had had a long relationship. And Paul was supposed to know And yet he didn't react in the right way, which probably led John to conclude that this was really what Paul wants it. I mean, again, I'm totally speculating here, but I'm putting together some of the story that they have told in different ways. And the problem is sometimes this story leaks out and then they go back to the traditional one. But this story here that Paul understood John, that when he acts out, it's really coming from a place of fear, and that John was so hurt because he thought McCartney was supposed to understand him, is basically the story of the breakup, is the premise of the breakup series, that all of John's acting out throughout 68 and 69 came from a desire to have proof that Paul cared and to make him pay attention and reassure John that he wasn't going anywhere. I mean, despite the fact that Paul is very focused on John, you know, if you look at Paul and get back, it's like he has everything. He doesn't seem to want to leave. But for an insecure male looking at another one, Paul's coming in with mega hits, looks insanely good. It seems to have all kinds of songs flowing through him. John may have been frightened that Paul was one day going to wake up and think, I don't need this band. And of course, he did need the band. You can see how much he loves the band. But, you know, John in a muddled state might not have been able to read that. And in fact, was putting out that he was going to leave, that maybe he didn't need the band. But again, I think these guys sat in their insecurity and and couldn't read each other that well at that time. In fact, in the song Jealous Sky, which maybe about Paul. Paul has said that John told him it was about him, but if it's not, it at least explains John's typical behavior. In the song, he says, I was feeling insecure. You might not love me anymore. I was shivering inside.
3: I'm just a jealous guy.
1: He's clearly saying that I didn't know. I was feeling insecure. I needed reassurance. I got upset. And then he says, I was trying to catch your eyes. Again, this idea that I was doing things to get attention. And then again, he apologizes saying, I didn't mean to hurt you. And it's interesting that Paul writes this song saying, hey, is all this coming from fear at the very time that John is putting out a song that explains this. I find that really fascinating because their partnership was a dance. And I think the way that it has been portrayed is so misconstrued, partly because what they have chosen to put out publicly. John puts out, how do you sleep? And admits it's 4 Paul, whereas he does not admit jealous guy is for Paul except potentially privately. Whereas dear friend comes out and Paul does admit that's for John. Whereas for a long time, he denied that too many people was also for John. And then even the way Paul tells this story, you know, that John wanted to leave, instead of admitting that he's the one that made it final, and then also admitting that all three other guys came back and said they wanted to form at different times in the 70s, but I said no. I mean, I'm not blaming Paul here, but he plays a role, and John is reacting to things that Paul did. So the way that their relationship is viewed, I think, has become very lopsided. I think there's this perception that they have an asymmetrical relationship where John acts out and he was messed up and self centered, but deep down he really loved Paul and needed Paul, while Paul was always supporting and loving towards John, who he revered. And honestly, I just do not think that this is the case. I mean, there's elements to Paul being more stable, which is true. And John was more damaged because of their upbringings. But Paul is also slightly damaged from losing his mother early. So it's not like it's therapist and patient here. I mean, these are guys that had an incredible Energy and attraction to each other creatively, mentally. I think it was so equal because they both needed each other and it was volatile because they cared so much. I mean, there was a crackling dynamism between them because they turned each other on creatively at such a level in a way that really nobody else could. If you look at how they react to each other, even in Get Back, when their relationship was at a low, you know, you can see how much they entertain each other and inspire ideas. You know, John was magnetic and moody, but Paul was charismatic and seductive and mercurial as well. They were competitive because they wanted to impress each other. They were trying to outdo each other to impress each other. You know, they were brilliant and they wanted to make each other laugh. Most of the time, it seemed like they had a ball with each other, but they also played games and people got between them and there was so much riding on them that things spiraled. And again, John had this extra neediness, but McCartney wasn't the ideal foil for this because McCartney is also an artist and fucked up from losing his mother and not able to express himself. So things spiraled between them. But the point is fundamentally, I don't think that either of them could get the other under their thumb, which made it extremely frustrating. Neither of them could pin the other down, but it also made it so exciting. And so their connection never really died. It just sort of turned from a loving, fun connection to one that was hurtful, but the energy was still there. But with this song, Paul is saying he's had enough, that that energy could dissipate. And I think that would be frightening. And even Paul in this song is saying he doesn't want to go there because ultimately he doesn't want to be done with John, but he doesn't understand why John turned on him. And yet he also, in this piece, explains that he does understand. And I wish that Paul Muldoon would have just reflected it back to him. That, Paul, you have the answer. But anyways, ultimately, he doesn't want to be done with John. He misses John. But, you know, the same can be said for John at this time. Dear Friend was recorded in August 1971 and released in December 1971. Meanwhile, the album Imagine came out in October, and it contained the song How Do You Sleep? But of course, it also contained the song, Jealous Guy, another deeply emotional song that explained John's actions. You know, it's almost as if John had to say, I'm really angry with you. And then he says, but this is why I did what I did. But also a couple of days after the the vicious, how do you sleep came out? John said in a press conference that he had moved beyond his issues with Paul, that now it was all good, that Paul was the closest person to him other than Yoko and had always been.
5: What do you think of Paul? Don't. i changed. Uh, he's still uh, the closest friend I ever had except for Yoko, so I mean, I'm still close to him. I haven't yeah.
1: And then the following day, which is his birthday, he leads a group to sing some of Paul's songs from Ram. And then the day after that, he talks to reporter Ray Connolly. And sends him back to London with a message for Paul that John wanted to talk. And the interesting thing is all of these actions from John happened before Dear Friend came out. So you see, both men were tired of fighting. Yet they couldn't get out of this spiral. Even after John did all this, their fighting in the press continued. But then, for some reason, things calmed down at the end of the year. At the end of 1971 in December, John and Paul meet with their wives and then they meet again at the beginning of 1972. So whatever it was, maybe it was dear friend that eventually got through. Maybe John realized that he was at the risk of losing his friendship. Maybe Paul had time to think about how do you sleep and process how do you sleep as well as jealous guy. I don't know. Maybe they just realized that between all of these songs, they still really cared. Some of that emotional, of that fighting, and eventually the admission that I still care helped them to settle down and just figure out a way forward. Because you know, I think this was an incredibly difficult process for them. They were they were basically they had said they were basically married for years, and then then they both married women, which even the Ruttles spoofed because. It's so obvious that they were kind of married to each other. So, you know, they needed space to probably figure out who they were without the other. Probably a good thing. And they needed space to really develop their relationship with their wives, which was also a really necessary thing. So this process was not necessarily a bad one. I just think it was incredibly hard for them. They were so dependent on each other. And these were the growing pains. And then eventually, I think they just realized that I don't think we can be done because even though we found partners, I still need you. That's what I think anyways. Um, And that's not to say that they didn't also need their wives because I think they also did. But clearly they were tired of, of fighting and something, some combination of all of this helped because this was the turning point, the inflection point where Lennon and McCartney went from fighting each other to rebuilding their relationship. And so I don't know if Paul's public support for Yoko, as he suggested, was actually the trigger for them to start repairing their relationship, or if it was really these messages to each other. Paul talks about the fact that John never specifically responded to his songs, but I doubt that Paul did either. And so maybe it was just better that this is how they speak. Anyways, it makes this song quite important. And I'm personally glad that I spent so much time working through it because it never sat well that it was a sweet song and it never sat well that it was a fully angry song. But I think it is an important part of the story in the relationship trajectory of Lennon-McCartney. So those are some very detailed, drawn out, potentially insane thoughts from me on the subject of Lennon and McCartney, but it's also informed. I have spent a lot of time studying the relationship, and that's my best guess of what is going on here. Anyways, I want to thank you all for listening. That really was the last episode of the season. In the interim, between putting out new episodes for season three, I will be rerunning Some of my other episodes, episodes that I think are important or interesting, and I'm hoping for those of you that have heard them once, that you might consider re-listening because they are jam-packed with information that you might have missed the first time. And for those of you who haven't listened to anything but this, um, you might find some new and interesting information that builds on some of the themes that I talked about in this episode. I want to uh, thank everyone that contributed to the podcast, and there are many people. I've had great guests. Duncan was a fantastic partner in some of these really crucial episodes. I want to uh, thank my researcher, Hallie Ryan, who has kept the conversation going. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please check out the podcast's YouTube channel and TikTok channel, which are just being started. And I will do more of these little meditations on various subjects. And I guess that is it for now. I'm sending lots of love to everyone who listens, and I'm sending big thanks and love to the Beatles for creating such a beautiful story for us to delve into. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: MSW.